Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 17, C.S. Lewis in the Authentic Self. Good morning, friends, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. Except, if you haven't noticed yet, this is a different episode. Usually, David is giving these introductions and creating clever names to introduce me. Unfortunately, that will not be happening today. Because this week, we are releasing, a, and I say this week, but I mean today, we are releasing a talk that I gave at Notre Dame at the Edith Stein Conference. They asked me to give a talk on C.S. Lewis and authenticity. The theme of the conference was authenticity. And for regular listeners who have gone through season one, there's a lot in mere Christianity. And so in this talk, I went through my journey. So I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. So I was pretty vulnerable with my own personal story, high school, college, struggles with Christianity, atheism, identity, and ultimately, what brought me to Christianity, which was C.S. Lewis, and ultimately what brought me to my Catholic faith and the love of the Eucharist and the Mass, and also was, interestingly enough, C.S. Lewis, and how that led to finding my true self, living authentically, and what I do every day to nurture that, to grow further in that. And so I am really excited Please don't judge, have some grace. This was the first time I'd given this talk, so it's not been... Obviously, I prepped and refined it for in preparation for this talk, but this is not some routine talk I give. This was the very first time. And I will say it's very intimidating going back to your alma mater with a bunch of students in front of you who they're not your peers anymore, but there's just this, this pressure that that place impacted you so much or me so much. And you feel this pressure to really bring your A game. And so that's, that was definitely present. But anyways, I really hope you guys enjoy this. I loved giving the talk. And I hope to give this more and refine it further. But anyways, without further ado, please enjoy the talk. Well, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I am genuinely very excited to be here at Notre Dame because it was at Notre Dame, it was my four years here, that really my life took a 180. And so this talk is a talk about authenticity. This conference is a conference about authenticity. And I want to today share my journey with that, to get quite personal with you guys, because I don't want to stay in my head. If this is something real, it translates into who you become as a person. And so the first part of this talk, I want to talk about this build up of my false self and the way I was living and the way it let me down. And then at my time at Oxford, the way it was transformed by C.S. Lewis and started me on this journey towards authenticity. And so I'm going to bring some different books that were very influential in that journey and authors and ultimately focus a lot on C.S. Lewis because I think he does an incredible job talking about this. 
And I hope from this, if you guys can gather something, because this was such an important time of my life, if I can just impart something on you guys, that would be incredible. So it's a privilege to be here. I thank you for your guys' time. I know many of you guys are quite busy, and you could be anywhere else but here. So I want to thank you for that. But to get into this, I know the answer for hopefully most of you is yes, but how many of you guys have seen the movie Rudy? Yes, this is pretty much a prerequisite for coming to Notre Dame. If any of you guys are domer, you have parents that were domers, and so you're a domer child, probably your parents indoctrinated you at a young age with that movie. And if they were like my parents, my parents told me, we, want, we can go anywhere you want to college. We're not going to push you towards Notre Dame. Except what they don't tell you is they completely were indoctrinating you at a young age, and they exposed me to Rudy, and they were planting the seed, and so they were manipulating me without even knowing it. <laughs> and it worked because I came here. But there's a scene in that movie, which actually, I didn't even think of this, coincidentally probably happened right out there, when he's talking to the janitor. And the janitor says, you are five foot nothing, 100 and nothing, and not a speck of athletic ability in your body. And yet you, you hung with the best football program in the country. And I start with that because that was very true to my high school days, which is where a lot of this journey begins. I usually tell people my freshman, sophomore year in high school, I actually would use that description. I would say I was genuinely five nothing up until summer of sophomore year, I was five foot two. I was 100 pounds and it was rough. And I actually pulled somewhat of a Rudy because I wanted to play on the basketball team. And I started months ahead of time going in at 6 a.m. My dad would wake up with me at five. He'd take me in at 6 a.m. I'd get in there, I'd practice for an hour and a half, and then I would shower and go to school. Coaches noticed, they put me on the team. When he said I was gonna be on the team, he told me I'd be riding the bench. I, I didn't have any delusions of grandeur. I knew that was going to be the case. And <clears throat> get to the end of the season, and there was a game similar to Rudy, it was at the very end. We're up by like 40 points. And he looks down, he says, Matt, come here. And so I come up to coach. I said, yes, coach. Probably, though, I hadn't gone through puberty, so it was more like, yes, coach, high-pitched voice. <laughs> and it's a home game, too. So the entire stands are filled with people that I know, my peers. And I'm already kind of struggling being small in high school. And so he puts me in, and I'm like a chicken with his head cut off, running around. I'm not really sure what I'm doing. And there gets to this point in it where I get the ball. I'm on the top of the free throw line, and I shoot. And I'd watch videos, you know, you're supposed to put hand in the cookie jar. So, you know, I tried to do the best shot I could do. And, you know, in the end of Rudy, obviously, he goes in, kind of similar thing, and he gets the sack. Everyone erupts. Well, I do this, hopefully something like this happens. Air ball. It was rough. The, the reason they call Rudy an improbable story is because that's the exception, not the rule. I start with that because that was a very... I obviously remember that story because that was kind of a mortifying moment of my life. You're in front of your peers, everyone sees you. And high school, I think we can all relate. And in all of life, we have this desire within us to belong, to be accepted, to be loved, and to love others. And I had that just like anyone else. But when you're in high school, you're small, you're short, you have a high-pitched voice. On top of that, I was called Little Maddie Bush because there was two Matt Bushes. So that made it even worse. 
I wanted to earn the love and the respect of my peers. And so I'm sitting here in this moment in life, things aren't working out, I'm not feeling very good about myself. And so I make this drastic 180 in this moment. I start thinking to myself, this isn't working. How can I gain respect? How can I gain admiration? How can I get people to like me? So I was actually a gamer at this time. That doesn't help either. I mean, I was playing like three or four hours of Halo a day. It was rough. Um, and I had an Xbox 360. And I actually spent 12 hours waiting to get this Xbox 360. Like I was one of those people that waited at Best Buy and then got it at midnight in the cold because this is Michigan. And I sold it. And I said, I've got to do a, a drastic shift. I went all in into the idea of trying to be successful, trying to be accomplished, studying my butt off to an insane degree, telling myself if I get into a good college, if I get good grades, if I'm successful, if I'm wealthy, I will be happy, people will admire me, people will like me, and I went all in on that. Fast forward to the end of high school, it actually somewhat worked. Kind of like a loan shark works, you know, it's a short-term fix, but then you realize it doesn't really fix the underlying issue. It worked, people started, I wasn't Mr. Popular by the end of high school, but I was respected by my teachers, I was admired, uh, it felt good, I got praise. So that was the first time I ever started becoming someone for the world because I wanted to be accepted. So fast forward, I get into Notre Dame. All of you guys are very familiar with this. I felt so good. I thought to myself, this is it. Like, I'm gonna feel confident. I'm gonna feel accepted. I finally made it. So I get to Notre Dame, but I have a little bit of a reversion of identity because my identity was placed in the perception or the praise of people around me. And so when you come to Notre Dame, you are no longer a big fish in a small pond. As you guys know, everyone here is so incredibly gifted. Therefore, this self of accomplishments that I built up doesn't really matter anymore. And in fact, the identity was so weak, I started to actually feel a little bit insecure. But I thought to myself, all right, you've done this before, Matt, high school. You, you doubled down, you worked hard, and you became accepted. So I did something very similar in Notre Dame. I started working super hard. It started working as well. And for my, uh, one of the things I was striving for was my junior year to get into the Oxford program. So I'm studying, I'm trying to gain as much accomplishments as I can. People are starting to like me a little bit more. I'm feeling a flimsy but decent sense of confidence at this. And so I applied to the Oxford program. They take one person from each major. So I'm applying to this, doing the essays, doing the interviews, and I get in and I'm so excited. I'm thinking to myself, that little Maddie Bush from high school is doing all right. Like I had pushed him down. I'd put on this exterior, if you want to call it that. And it worked again. Like I felt great. So then I go to Oxford. And the first couple weeks were pretty wonderful. If anyone here knows of Oxford, I mean, it's an intellectual hub. You've got the spires. You've got the buildings, you've got the, uh, the gardens all over. They have a different garden in every college. One of genuinely the most beautiful places on earth. So I get there, first few weeks are fantastic. It's what I thought it was going to be. Then all of a sudden, within like a month or two, I probably hit rock bottom. It's the first time I'm alone, because here we have, we have I mean, we're away from parents, but we have roommates, we have friends. 
there I knew no one. I had no friends. I lived on my own. And my world was turned upside down on me. It was the first time I realized the success, the accolades, the accomplishments, the things I was driving for, that I put my sense of identity in, that I put my sense of worth in, really meant nothing. Like when you're sitting in a room on your own and you know no one, you don't just sit there and reminisce and say, wow, I've done this, this, and this. Like that doesn't give you any sense of peace. That doesn't give you a strong sense of identity. It's like in scripture when it talks about building your house on the sand and the waters come up and the uh, wind and the waves and you're on a weak foundation, it gets blown down really easily. That was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And I'm not joking when I say how serious this was. I actually, who's seen Bridget Jones' Diary? Few people here. So I was like Bridget Jones and Bridget Jones' Diary where in the evenings, it was pretty bad, I knew no one. I would watch TV, watch movies. I would literally eat ice cream. I would, I would go to the store. I was probably drinking a little bit of an unhealthy amount. I would have a few gin and tonics. I was pretty depressed. I was hiding myself in there. I was essentially running away from this idea that I didn't feel a strong sense of identity. I was numbing myself, to put it frankly. And I would do that really frequently. I mean, I was still working hard, but that's just what I would do with my evenings. And by the grace of God, I wasn't going to sit in that spot. After a couple months of too many rom-coms, a couple months of too many ice creams, stopped exercising and putting on a few pounds, you start to ask yourself, right, what are you doing with your life? And so this starts off this deep exploration of truth, I guess, of meaning, of trying to figure out what's the answer to life, what's going to bring happiness. And Oxford had this really wonderful thing. Uh, Blackwell's, particularly this bookstore there, had this 100 Great Ideas series that I came across. And what they do is they condense some of the best books of, well, history into 80 to 150 page excerpts. So I go in and you can get like three for 10 quid. So I start buying these things. I'm buying Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Socrates, Plato. Uh, I remember Blaise Pascal, his book on human happiness. I remember Seneca on the shortness of life. And I'm trying to ask myself, what's going to bring the happiness, the fulfillment that I desire? What's going to fix this deep state of despair that I'm feeling right now in my life? This loneliness, this self-loathing, this lack of self-worth. And some of them are appealing to me, actually. Seneca, this stoic idea of, right, the world's not working. I was living for the world. I was living what they said would bring happiness, and it did none of that for me. So then I start asking myself, well, maybe I have to live in the world, but not among the world. Maybe I need to renounce the world. Maybe that's the issue here. That's more of a stoic idea. I come across Augustine. I'm actually exploring at this time in my life atheism. So before I went to Oxford, I had read Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and I started wondering whether God exists or not. And if anyone's ever done that exploration, if you only ever read one book on something, any book can sound enticing until you realize there's another side to the story. And actually, while I was at Oxford, Richard Dawkins was a I want to say an emeritus fellow at New College. That's the college that I was at with Notre Dame. And so I saw Richard Dawkins once walking on the quad, and I went up to him and I said, Dr. Dawkins, I'm reading your book, The God Delusion. Asked him some questions, and he put me in the direction of Lawrence Krauss. So I'm still exploring. Lawrence Krauss wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, How We Have Something Rather Than Nothing. Reading that. And at the same time, though, I'm still struggling. I'm still not finding a lot of meaning. And... 
I Skype one of my friends, one of my closest friends from high school. Uh, his name's Matt, same name as me. Not Matt Bush, though, not the other one. <laughs> I don't like him as much. He, <laughs> he made it rough for me. But one of my closest friends, Matt, and he actually says, he goes, Bush, not little Bush, thankfully. He says, Bush, I think you need a little C.S. Lewis in your life. And I'm thinking to myself at this time, I'm reading Richard Dawkins. I'm reading Lawrence Krauss. C.S. Lewis doesn't seem to be much of an intellectual heavyweight like they are. Now, again, I don't know anything of C.S. Lewis. All I know is, isn't this the guy that wrote the Narnia series? Isn't that just a fiction book for kids? Because I hadn't actually read it, so these are preconceived judgments. And also, he's, he, he suggests mere Christianity. And I'm thinking to myself, again, with that title, that doesn't instill a lot of confidence, a title, Mere Christianity. I'm thinking that kind of sounds like, eh, you know, this is Christianity, it is what it is. But because he was a good friend, I thought to myself, okay, I will give this a shot. And so I read Christ- Mere Christianity. It doesn't, it doesn't convince me of the existence of God. But there was something in that book that stirred up a longing inside of me that I didn't know how to explain at the time. There was a beauty to it. I thought to myself at this time in my life, nothing's working. I'm not finding happiness, but something in here seems like if I were to live this way, that I would find this joy that I'm looking for. And it's not surprising that it would be C.S. Lewis that does this, because for Lewis, longing was a huge part of his journey. If you read his book, Surprised by Joy, it was joy that ended up bringing him from atheism to Christianity, not to be confused with his wife, Joy Davidman, but truly the meaning of joy. And this began the next chapter of my life. I had no idea the journey that this was going to start, but it opened my eyes to come back to Christianity. It opened my eyes to another way of living, that Christianity wasn't just some teaching, some arbitrary rules, some constraints, that there was something here that was beautiful, and I wanted to know more about it. In this next part of my journey, is like an unwinding of the eight years of that false self I had to build up. And I don't pretend here eight years later, it's genuinely about eight years later, that was 2011, to have unwound it all. Because this is a journey, as I will explain, using C.S. Lewis. And I didn't know I was getting into at the time, but it was an incredible transformational point in my life that put me on a different path. So I come back to Notre Dame. It's my senior year, and I have... I can practically graduate a year early. I had one required class left. And so I said to myself, rather than saving my parents some money, I thought I'm going to take a theology minor and tack on a bunch of classes. So I genuinely took a theology minor and took a Chesterton course, a Lewis course. If you guys know Professor Fagerberg, if you haven't taken that, I would highly recommend it. Even if you're not a theology minor, if it's the same as before, it was a huge auditorium to sneak into the classes because it's genuinely incredible. I took an Augustine course, and I took a death and rebirth course on the spiritual journey. So as you can tell, none of these are like Catholic Catholic doctrine courses. My goal right now is just to figure out truth, to figure out what's the meaning of life, to figure out what this Christianity thing is that struck a chord in me. So I go after that, and it's still in my head though. I should say this, it's still in my head. There's a priest, he's here. I don't know if he's teaching courses anymore. I think he got moved more into administration, but Father Grudy played an incredibly impactful role in my life, and I got to know him very well with one of his classes and meeting with him, and 
he said to me once, Matt, you can miss the distance, you can miss heaven by the distance of 18 inches. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, that's the distance between your head and your heart. And so the beginning of this journey was my head. All of Christianity was in my head at this point. It hadn't translated it all into my heart. But there was something intellectually curious in me to learn more about this. So I go out to San Diego after college. And I get out in San Diego, and I start to go to a non-denominational church. I'm not going to a Catholic church at this stage. Um, Augustine in, in Chesterton helped me with Catholicism, but I hadn't given into all of this yet. So I'm going to a non-denominational church. Things are going all right. I'm enjoying this. I'm seeing more beauty in Christianity. I'm seeing an incredible community, but it's still in my head, and there's still something missing. Enter Henry Nouwen. How many of you guys have heard of Henry Nouwen? Oh, thank goodness. You guys are just way ahead of where I was at your time in life. Um, Henry Nouwen was the first person that helped me understand this false self, true self. That's what I want to, to continue talking about more of this true self. At the time, I didn't know any of this, by the way. Like when I talk about this now, I can use language like false self, true self. I had no idea any of this. And I want to read something from Henry Nouwen. It was the first time I'd ever thought of something of the false self this way. But Henry Nouwen says, I leave home, and so when he says leave home, think of your true self. I leave home every time I follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to win the love I so much desire. And I literally hear this and I think to myself, this is everything I've been doing, this is my life. I'm following these desires, these voices that are telling me if I do this, this is how I will be loved. Then he goes on and he says, I give all the power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good looking, intelligent, and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, do much. This was the first time I had ever realized the way I was living. Earlier, I'd known that this wasn't working, but I didn't realize this false self that I had built up. I, in high school, that's what happened to me. People will love me if I'm successful. People will love me if I'm good looking. People will love me if I dress well. It's like these ifs, ifs, ifs. And I did it, and it felt like it worked at first, like I said. But then I realized it didn't when I was at Oxford. And he talks about these ifs as like these voices of the world. And I can't believe what you guys go through every day because when I went to college and going through all of this, social media wasn't a big thing. In fact, Facebook wasn't mobile yet. I never had social media. Instagram wasn't around, Snapchat. So I can't imagine being in your guys' shoes today and the, the voices of the world that come through that, that tell you who you have to be, that comparisonism, the materialism that you see all the, all the time through these channels in the way that that could be shaping you. And so... I thankfully didn't have that, but I still had these struggles. But then he goes on and he talks about this true self. So I'm getting this, and this is in his book, by the way, Return of the Prodigal Son. So if you, if you haven't read that, I would highly recommend it. So then he talks about this true self, and he says, home is the center of being where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. So he focuses so much on the baptism of Christ in the way that in the same way Christ is the beloved and on him his favor rests, that's our home. And so I'm hearing this for the first time. I'm thinking, okay, this is helpful. And then he talks about how from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, 
we're faced with the call to become who we are. To become who we are. I almost put becoming in the title of this talk because it's a journey. And so now I'm hearing, at this time in my life, this false self. I'm hearing a bit about this true self. But that almost still seems abstract. It's almost like I'm telling you guys just have to understand that God loves you. That's a very true statement. It's an incredibly true statement. I don't want to belittle it. But I'm asking myself, well, how do I do this? I mean, it's easier said than done. The world doesn't tell me I'm very well loved. And Henry Nouwen offers a really beautiful answer to this that then Lewis, where I'm going to go do next, takes it to a whole other level for me. But Henry Nouwen, if you guys know the Elijah story in 1 Kings 19. So 1 Kings 19, Elijah's on the mountain, and there's an earthquake. Then there's a hurricane, and then there's fire. And there's these big grand events happening, and it says God is not in these events. But then it says there's a stillness, a silence, a whisper, depending on what word you want to use, the translation. And in there heard the voice of God. And that word in Hebrew is sowed. And actually, I didn't know this would come full circle. In my senior year of high school, I went to Israel and I heard that talk. And actually, that's the word that I put on my ring well before I knew this. So this is a Hebrew word for sowed because I'd heard this talk before and it really resonated with me. I didn't know the impact it would have five, six years later. But for Henry Nouwen, he said that you need to create the space in your life to channel out those distractions, to channel out those voices that constantly are telling you the contrary of what's true, and create the space to hear that voice of God. And so this was helpful for me. I'm now starting to see this. I'm in San Diego. This is the first time it's starting to go from my head to my heart. Like, I, I can see that I've got a journey to go on. I can see that just understanding or intellectually ascending to Christianity is not enough. So, I'm at this retreat. It's in San Diego. It's a year and a half, two years now in. And it was at a Catholic retreat because I had, at this point, a few months before that, started coming back to the Catholic church because of a girl I was dating. I'll tell you what, girls, you have a lot of power over men. <laughs> if you're, it's true. If a girlfriend asks you to come to a retreat and I didn't want to go to this retreat because I'm introverted. And so the concept of coming close to God and, the, and with 150 people around me sounded very foreign to me. But I went and it was incredibly transformational for me. I was sitting in adoration. I'm still hesitant, but walls have been breaking down from some of the talks and some of the speakers chiseling away at me. I'm in adoration. It's two hours. Worship music going on in the background, but like instrumental, very quiet, very beautiful. I'm on my knees and it's cement floor. And I just decided to like put my hands in the air, close my eyes. I didn't honestly care what anyone was thinking. And I became overwhelmed with this feeling that it's time that I finally surrender to God. It's time to go from the head to the heart. It's time to commit to this because I had now read so many different things. I'd read Augustine. I've heard the restless hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I'm finding no peace still yet in my life, but I seem to know the answers at this point. And I just break down. I go into confession. I hadn't gone to confession since confirmation at this point in time. So I go into confession with the priest. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I sit there and the priest has a box of tissues and I'm kind of in there and I'm thinking to myself, man, who needs those things? And I start, well, I genuinely start sharing with him and I tell him, and then I start breaking down. I actually start crying. Probably the first time I'd cried in a long time. And I literally just say to the priest, 
I'm more actually speaking to God when I say this, but I said, Father, like, I am so sorry for putting my identity in the world, even though I know you're the only answer to happiness. It was the first time I started recognizing this. And from that moment on, began a journey towards Catholicism in a big way. I I get back, I go to this Catholic church community because that retreat was full of Catholic people. I found out the majority of them went to a certain parish and they all seemed really wonderful. And this parish was incredible. 200 young adults that would pretty much get together every Wednesday night. I'd never seen anything like it in a Catholic parish. It was incredible. And so I start getting involved with that. My classic intellectual pursuits still are still going on. I'm reading early church fathers. I'm reading um, Irenaeus, Ignatius of Antioch, Clement, Polycarp. I'm asking myself, is Catholicism true? Because I just can't do something if I don't believe it's true. And I start reading and realizing as they're talking about the Eucharist, they're talking about the sacraments, they're talking about all of these things that are Catholic. And I'm like, whoa, there's something here. And so I, I start going to Mass regularly. I start taking confession seriously. I start taking the sacraments seriously. I take taking the Eucharist seriously. And I start noticing transformation happening within me. I start noticing this false self breaking down. I start noticing my desires changing, my desires reorienting. I start noticing myself finding more happiness. I start noticing myself feeling like I belong more, that I feel accepted in a true way, not the false way that I was doing before. But I didn't know why. Knowing that at this time, for example, that the Eucharist was a true presence didn't yet help me understand the why it was so important. And this is where C.S. Lewis enters in. How many of you guys, and after talking to some of you at lunchtime, I think there's going to be more than I was expecting, have heard of a term like theosis or deification or divinization? There's Father Ryan in the back. You guys are fantastic. You guys are literally way ahead of me than I was at this time. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, the Son of God became man, so man could become sons of God. And I had no idea what that meant. I had never heard this before. And later on in mere Christianity, he says, this is the main point of Christianity. This is everything. And I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? What's all this other stuff that I've been reading about? And it's not that those things aren't important, but this was the first time I had heard that language. Lewis didn't write this language. Because then I start going to some early church fathers again. I realized he pretty much, almost verbatim, copied St. Athanasius. But then I realized Clement of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine. I think it was Irenaeus, probably one of the earliest ones I had read something in. They're using these words like deify, becoming God. And I'm like, what is going on here? I mean, this is intense. No one's told me that this is something that happens in Christianity. And so this is the first time I'm starting to see all of this. But what Lewis means by this, there's another quote here that I thought was really powerful of his that really explains this because I wanted to understand more of what this meant. Lewis writes, the real son of God is at your side. He's beginning to turn you into, same, into the same kind of things as himself. Capital H. I'm like, wait, what, is, what does he mean turn him into himself? He's beginning to inject his kind of life and thought. I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? Inject his life and thought. He puts his divine life into you. He's beginning to turn you from a tin soldier into a living man. I'm thinking to myself, whoa, I'm starting to see a little bit more what's happening here. And and for the sake of time, I don't want to unpack. There's a huge amount of theology here. But Lewis has some chapters on making versus beginning. And he talks about, in, in the creed we go, God, Jesus Christ, he's begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Lewis talks about how 
when a man and a wife have a child, that child's begotten. It's of the same essence or the same substance. But if I create a statue that looks like me, it can be in my image, it can look like me, but it's not, it's made. It's not of the same essence of me. It's not begotten. So what he talks about is Jesus Christ being begotten is fully man, fully divine. And when we bring Christ into our life, we can partake in that divine life. And then he has a chapter on the Trinitarian, the three-personal God. And again, I hesitate to bring this up because that's a massive theology, and Augustine wrote an entire book on this. But Lewis talks about this Trinity, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is this pulsating activity, this life, this dynamic activity. He says it's not static. You can't have a God of love and not be static. And he says, actually, he goes, if you won't think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And he says, we are called to get caught up in this higher life. We're called to be drawn up into this life of God. And he goes, the whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken up into this life. And I remember later on, Scott Hahn had once said, when we sit here and we go in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we enter into this Trinitarian life. We enter into that. That's actually why I put the title further up and further in, because every day it's this journey of going further up and further in, into that life. And he even goes so far, he says, and precisely that is what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculpture shop, a shop, worthy sculptures, and there's this rumor going around that some of us are going to come to life. And so this is the first time, again, I'm hearing about all this. And what's powerful is that I'm asking myself, well, how do you get this? Because again, it's, this seems great, but what are the mechanisms that we can partake in this? How do we do this? Is this just believing in Christ and this just happens? Well, Lewis talks about the thing, the good infection. He's got a few comments on this. He goes, first of all, think of this divine life as like this fountain, this energy that's overflowing. He goes, you have to get close to it and then it'll infect you and it'll start transforming you. He goes, if you want to get wet, you have to get in the water. If you want to be warm, you have to get close to the fire. He says, God doesn't just go throw this out and choose this out. You've got to get close to him, enter into communion with him, and these things can start happening. But he goes a step further. Lewis says, belief, baptism, and bread, holy communion. And he goes, you might notice two of those are material things. We weren't meant to be just spiritual creatures. He goes, God created matter. God likes matter. In fact, he says, don't think yourself holier than God. This is the way that he transmits his divine life. And for Lewis, I didn't realize this. I won't read some of the quotes there, but for Lewis, Holy Communion, it didn't start as something very important in his life. But when you read the letters to Malcolm that he wrote in like the last year, Holy Communion, he realized was something incredible. He actually says it's a concrete way that the divine life is transmitted to us. And now I'm starting to think Holy Communion, Mother Eucharist. I'm starting, I'm starting to paint a picture here that now I see what the Catholic Church has been teaching for so long. And what he says is when we get this divine life, when we participate in this, Lewis's very last chapter of his book, Mere Christianity, says we become new men. He says you don't become better men. That's a byproduct, most likely when you're doing this. But that's not the point of Christianity, to just become better, to get rid of these sinful desires and just to become a good person. He actually describes it as already been said, a tin man coming to life, a sculpture coming to life, a, a horse becoming a winged creature. There's something really tangible and real happening here when this is done, when we receive this divine life and it transforms within us. And when we do this, 
This is the only way we can become authentically ourselves. He says, it's no good trying to be myself without him, capital H. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I'm dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely the desires pumped into me by other men's thoughts and even suggested to me by the devils. So when we try to, he's building off of this idea, it says in scripture, you have to lose yourself to find yourself. He actually says there must be a real giving up of self and then Christ will indeed give you your real personality. So we become these new men, we get this new personality, we become new individuals, and it's only by being with Christ. This is the first time I'm hearing this. But then I go to the catechism, and I read the definition of the sacraments. It says, The Catholic Church teaches that the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which the divine life is dispensed to us. This was the first time I had ever heard of it this way. And actually before this, we were talking, I was talking with Father Ryan and he goes, have you read the first paragraph of the catechism, which practically I'm not going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it word for word, practically talks about this process. I had no idea that this was the heart of the Catholic faith. I had no idea when it says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Catholic faith. This is what it's talking about. We're genuinely receiving Christ within us. And when that happens, we receive the divine life and this transformation is occurring. And for me, as I'm starting, I'm, I'm now, this was about three years ago when this was all clicking. And I was already involved in the Catholic faith in a deep way, but I didn't know the why. This was the first time I figured out the why. So I'm seeing healing happening. I'm seeing my desires changing. But I wanted to take this to another level. And so for me, in my life, going to daily Mass became incredibly important because I realized the gift that you receive when you go receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. Confession became more important to me. As Henry Nouwen talks about that silence and solitude, creating space in my life for Christ to form became important because the sacraments are a very primary mechanism for it, but also creating space for Christ to enter into communion with you in times of solitude and silence. Channeling out these distractions of the world. And I'll tell you what, it's really hard to sit with yourself for 30 minutes sometimes. Actually, Blaise Pascal, in his book, Human Happiness, thought the sum of man's problems can be summed up in his inability to sit alone with himself for 30 minutes. It's like genuinely really tough. And you'd be surprised at how much your false self you'll like witness in your thoughts as you're sitting there trying to channel out the distractions of the world. And you'll start seeing your brain say, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, this, this. And you're like, oh, wow, all right, shut up, false self. And this starts becoming my life. And... is we think about what this looks like. It's hard, I was trying to think through how I can paint a picture of what now it looks like after going through this, of what an authentic life looks like. Because it was a lot easier for me to paint the picture of the false life. That was living for the world. But this authentic life, I was trying to think to myself some examples, but I wanted to bring in here a little bit of Henry Nouwen because I think he does a very beautiful job doing this. He says, as the beloved, so now as a person who has entered into this space, who has brought Christ into their life, who's starting to allow it to transform them, he goes, I can confront, console, admonish, encourage without fear of rejection and need for affirmation. 
As the beloved, I can suffer persecution without the desire for revenge and receive praise without using it as proof of my goodness. I can attest to this. When you build up your false self, you have to maintain your false self because your false self is fully dependent on the expectations of the world and their, their affirmations towards you. And so you become defensive. If someone, let's say your false self, in my case, it was intelligence. So if someone questions my intelligence, well, I'm going to attack back at the person because they're breaking down my sense of self-worth. If someone questions my accomplishments or if someone's more successful than me, my false self starts rearing up because I'm thinking to myself, ooh, maybe I'm feeling a little threatened here. But when you live from this place of the beloved, you no longer have to worry about that. And this is easier said than done. I'm not saying I sit here and... I don't, I mean, I get up here and I'm afraid of what you guys think. And it's like, well, that's the false self. I'm worried, are they going to like me? But that shouldn't matter. And then Lewis says, already the new men are dotted here and there all over the earth. Some, as I have admitted, are still hardly recognizable. This is a journey. This is not something that just happens overnight. In your early stages, you're hardly recognizable, but that's okay. But others can be recognized. Every now and then one meets them. Their voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. I always love that quieter because they don't need to prove themselves to you. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They're not going to be very much like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that they're being kind, you're being kind to them. I love this line, but they're really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less because they don't need your affirmation and your praise. They will usually seem to have a lot of time, and you're going to wonder where it came from. There's something different about these individuals. And I can say with my own life, it's not like you're going to drastically necessarily see some different different. My desires have, have, I still have desires. I'm still working hard. If you looked at my life then and now, it's not like there's a massive 180, but on the inside, there's a different way that you're approaching the world. And I want to finish with the very last line of Lewis's book in Mere Christianity, because I think this sums up his thought very well. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. This was my old self. I found that. I was looking for myself and that's where I ended. But look for Christ and you will find with him everything else thrown in. This is what Lewis did for me. I'm not pretending as I'm up here that I have arrived. I'm not pretending that I'm living from the state of the beloved. There's moments in my time where I'm much closer to that when I am in better communion with Christ and I'm preparing my hearts for it. But then there's other times where I fall away from it. And it's usually when I'm getting away from the sacraments. It's usually when I'm getting away from my prayer life. It's usually when I'm not creating space for Christ that the false self starts coming back up and comes back hard. But what I love that Lewis has done for me, and now the Catholic Church in general that I know how it works, is it gives you that hope, it creates 
the outlets. It creates the space through the sacraments, through adoration, through the rosary, these beautiful practices that were not just rituals that we created. There's actual meaning to what we do with them that I can always go back to those and that's how I get centered and that's how I start living from that place of the beloved. And so with that, guys, I thank you for your time. Well, thank you guys for listening to that. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about me. You guys hear myself every week with David, and obviously we try to be personable and vulnerable. Hopefully that gives you a little bit more of my story, my journey. And feel free if you have any questions to contact us either on Instagram or Twitter, Pints with Jack. If it's personal, you can just go to our website. We have a contact form there. We get those emails. We reply to most of them, if not all of them. So definitely do that. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, definitely rate us. If we've earned the five stars, give it to us. If not, email us, and we will try to up our game to earn that. And then... Also, if you guys really love this podcast and feel called to support us on Patreon, we have a Patreon going. Um, And also, please check out our website because we have a blog going there and we have a YouTube channel. So, yes, that is everything, guys. Thank you, and please join us next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers.